Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com, the military news and veteran lifestyle website. I am Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And in this next segment, we're going to talk about the intersection of military, veteran, and higher education. Long since in the game has been our friends over at University of Maryland Global Campus. And we stay and remain deeply connected with them as a partner in the effort to bring you this show because they have been servicing the military and the veteran community with the absolute best qualifications for the time. So here to talk not only that, but a little bit of black history as well is uh, the president of University of Maryland Global Campus, Dr. Gregory Fowler. Dr. Fowler, always good to catch up with you, man. Thanks for having me on here again, Phil. It is absolutely great to spend some time with you and certainly talk about some of the wonderful things that the university is doing and certainly some of the wonderful things that our military members are doing, whether they're active duty or veterans, or in some cases, as you know, their family members. Yeah. And uh, let's start off with some fun facts. I wanted to know a little bit more about UMGC and its intersection with military vets. There's a few that sort of stand out as people that have gone through their study, but then went on to do some pretty big things. There's an ambassador, Mr. Edward Perkins, that rose to public prominence that came through UMGC first. Tell me about that. Yes, he rose uh, to public prominence, actually, under the Reagan administration. Um, He was um, a career diplomat, uh, was a former U.S. Marine. um, But in 1986, he was named the first Black ambassador to apartheid South Africa. So you can, again, appreciate that intersection of history, impact, um, the military, and also, of course, the idea of just uh, being that first Black ambassador to uh, apartheid South Africa has to be something that we um, take a look at and go, clearly somebody who's going to make a difference in the world. And when you think about the day and age, uh, I'm a middle-aged man, so I can remember 1986 quite clearly. South Africa, hadn't gotten it right. And while today it doesn't seem shocking because, you know, our sec def, let's take him, for instance, uh, Mr. Lloyd Austin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We don't think anything of it. Prior to that, you had General Colin Powell that had done some huge things in governance. And in 86, that would have been kind of groundbreaking for us to send an African-American envoy on our behalf to that embassy. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. So you may remember, of course, this is during the time when we're still trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, you got, the, the, of course, Mandela being such a huge figure in the country. Um, and of course, President Bolto, when he, of course, uh, decided they were going to deal with the changes that were happening in South Africa. So this country was still just starting to wrestle with some of the implications of this. And in many instances, you know, the U.S. has done a really good job of signaling progress by sending people in as a message as well. Um, you may, may remember we've also had um, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who, of course, um, was a the, the woman who went over to Europe. And, of course, her history there sent a signal to um, the uh, the various populations over there that the U.S. was trying to send a different message. So in this particular instance, Ambassador Perkins uh, represents our ability to, you know, influence the world through our messaging, through our walking the walk, through our demonstrations of the beliefs that we have in these various places. So had a huge role to play in making sure that South Africans saw um, an ambassador who um, was of African-American descent, who, of course, was sent there to demonstrate the most powerful country in the world is sending this person here because they can have that kind of impact. And the thing I love that the veteran community demonstrates all the time, and I'm glad UMGC recognizes, is that also as a Marine, you know, from the minutes you stand on the yellow footprints, uh, that's your new birthday. You were all created equal. You were all nothing when you get to Paris Island. You're going to be told that for weeks, and then you come out on the other side, one heck of a great, proud American. I will say over and over again, you know, um, UMGC back then, it was the College of Continuing and Professional Studies out of the University of Maryland but was the first in Maryland to desegregate. Um, and in 1948, when we started saying, okay, it was at the time it was called the night school. We've taken great pride over the years in being able to say, we are going to find ways to reach more people in more places in different ways than any other school in history. Um, and I still say, I laugh because I was just looking at um, our graduation in December. Um, and we had a graduate here who had studied while studying down in Antarctica. Um, and it's like, and it wasn't the first, actually, we had some back in the 1980s who did the same type of thing. But how do you think about reaching students wherever they are and saying, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're in an active battle zone, whether you're on a beach, whether you're in a jungle in Vietnam, we are going to find a way to do what needs to be done to help students reach their full potential. And particularly when you're talking about the um, uh, idea of Black History Month, being able to say we want to make sure that we played a big role in helping the, the various populations of uh, Black Americans, but also African-Americans and others around the world see the power and the potential uh, of this is something that UMGC is very proud to be a part of. Mm. Can't imagine that being my duty station. Oh, sounds... apparently, it's, apparently, got some great views of the stars. <laughs> Wi-Fi access might be a little that spotty, could be a bit of a problem. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things where yeah, you aren't going to be calling home on a regular basis through the Wi-Fi bandwidth down there. <laughs> kind of leads me into another question here. It, you know, I've heard UMGC described as student centric from some of my colleagues and some of my partners over there. Um, is that is that what you're speaking to right there with that last point? Yes, and it's interesting. I always say, you know, people throw around the word student-centric like they throw around the word world peace. Um, it's like, it's something that everybody says, yeah, that sounds like something we'd want to see happen. Um, but the complexities of actually really doing that and the steps necessary to do that are much more um, challenging and complex than I think a lot of people do. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit here about um, there are two ways to look at student centricity from my mind. There's certainly 
being able to say we are surrounding the student and looking in at them and trying to make sure we are focused on their needs. But there's also um, the other way of looking at student centricity, which is we are looking at the world from the student's eyes. Um, and so rather than us all looking in, what does the student see when we send them that letter or when we give them that communication or that response or when we build out this type of process? What's the experience they have? Uh, my first job in college um, was at Six Flags over Georgia in Atlanta. And we spent huge amounts of time at Six Flags thinking about the guest experience from the moment that they arrive in the parking lot to get through the gate to, you know, where's the new ride in the park going to be and where, where do we need to have the shows and the restrooms and the food. And it really is very intentionally designed to think about what's the best way to put this forward. In the same way we at UMGC are trying to think about from the moment somebody hears our name to when they inquire, to they take their first class, to the, you know, they get through their first semester and to their second, to the graduation. What are they seeing? How are we representing and making sure that we um, communicate in everything that we do and design and the policies that we put in place, that this is really about us walking the walk with you and being part of your experience and trying to understand the world as you see it. Um, and that's not necessarily the way higher education has always seen itself. Uh, as a college professor, many people see this as a sort of, I'm the authority, you're here to learn, I will help you do this, as opposed to let me think about the experience in a different way. And that's what we're trying to do, with, particularly with our military um, students, being able to understand they are going to have permanent changes of station. They're going to have um, situations where they're going to need us to think differently about um, the ways they're going to have to engage because they are going to be sometimes in active battle zones. And sometimes they are going, I'll never forget um, when I got an, an email some years ago from a student who was talking about using his night goggles to read his textbook um, because he was out in the field. And it's like, who else gets to tell these kinds of stories um, and understand? But if you appreciate that, then it comes up with a whole different meaning of seeing the world through the student side. So that's what we mean by student centricity. I never had such worthy excuses to have late homework. I was never having to do it with night vision goggles on. I mean, any <laughs> any assignment I ever tackled in college, uh, I certainly could have done better uh, had I tried <laughs> as hard as some of these service members do and as some of our veterans have served to show us, uh, you know, that they're fully capable and just great well, well, you know, it really is. And I, and I do want to pay, you know, particular honor to our service members right now because, you know, over the last, just the last year, um, I was talking to someone, I'm getting ready right now to head over to Guam because uh, Super Typhoon Mawar really wiped out a lot of uh, power and fresh water. And a lot of our service members and our team members who are over there on the ground have spent the last year, you know, getting things back to normal. Last December, you may have heard about the um, Osprey accident over in Asia um, with um, two of those service members were our students. Um, when I was uh, not too long ago over in uh, Naples, Italy, they are in ready to deploy orders have been um, sent to them and many of the family members, certainly in the um, Middle East, where we have people in Jordan and other places, um, they are been told to shelter in place. And so it's critically important if we're going to be talking about service members to understand their experience. And to build an experience that says, we will work with you and we will be there every step of the way and with you and your family members as you are trying to do these types of things. Because we get that this is not a residential coming of age experience that you would have seen um, at some of the other schools around the country. Um, it is a different thing, but we want to make sure you have that opportunity to transform your lives as well. 
And that's definitely something you don't hear from every university in this day and age. So uh, kudos to you guys for recognizing that. Uh, you also recognize the learning experiences that military service members may gain outside the classroom. Um, you know, the things that they have to do to qualify for a higher rank and to continue on there. But then as I've even experienced when I got out, that just doesn't translate. Uh, I, I remember looking at my own transcripts and thinking about jumping back into school when I was a younger guy in my 20s. I'd first gotten out of the Navy. And they're like, well, you know, that's great. Your defense information school diploma is nice. We don't recognize it. How does UMGC treat that? And how do you recognize those learned experiences? You know, it's interesting. I'll go back to another experience I had not too long ago. I was over at Camp Fuji in Japan. Um, and when I was talking to a sergeant major who was wrapping up his business degree, um, and I was talking to him about his experience and saying, let me understand a little bit more about how rank is assigned and how you have to actually perform and how you have to demonstrate skill sets to actually gain these. And one of the things we were talking about was given that you're a sergeant major, it seems a little um, weird to me that you would have to step into a classroom and take an introduction to organizational leadership class. Something tells me you already have a pretty good sense about that. I can probably teach a couple of our instructors a little bit about organizational leadership. So we've been spending a lot of time trying to think much more about skills-based credentialing. Um, and what that means is being clear about what are the skills, what are things you need to know to do to be, and where are the various places and ways those things happen. We often talk about lifelong learning, but the truth of the matter is most of the learning we're going to do in our lives happens outside of a traditional classroom. We just don't always get credit for it because people don't necessarily know how to measure. So we've been spending a lot of time, particularly working with the military to say, can we find ways to document that these skills have already been um, acquired? And if so, we can give credit for those types of things so that you can move faster um, by not having to take those classes. You can save money by um, not having to take those classes. And we can still get you to a place where you can then, as you, whether you are staying in the military or as you're leaving the military to go into civilian life, have the credentials that you need from a state university that's qualified to do these things to say, this person has demonstrated these skills and has um, the credential they need to keep moving forward. You are seeing some 14 governors in America have now said um, over the last two years, they will no longer require a college degree um, for people who want to get state jobs. But they didn't say that they weren't going to require skills. So you still got to be able to have those skills and have that documented. So we're spending a lot of time trying to put the uh, mechanisms in place for that, those skills to be tagged and assessed or at least um, documented and allow you to keep moving forward so that um, the veterans and even our active duty members can get those jobs based upon the demonstration of those skills in ways that might not have been a traditional test or paper or group project that you would have seen, but still is nonetheless valid for what they're trying to do. Yeah, that's great. Recognizing, you know, their lived experiences and how that translates into an academic credential. Um, are you also looking on the other side of the fence, talking to employers? I just got done doing an interview uh, about the hot jobs of 2024 and cyber was one of the big categories. I know it's a big category with UMGC and overall at University of Maryland, but the gentleman had mentioned he oftentimes forgoes campus tours. Because he knows the actual credentials he needs to get a you know an IT veteran involved in cyber, involved in satcom and satellite technology. Do you too reach out then to the private sector and find out what certifications they're looking for and how best to keep those on the syllabus? Oh, absolutely. Not only do we do that, very much even the experiences we have in the traditional 
um, classroom, we are very much partnering with various types of companies and organizations to understand what are those skill sets um, and how and what does that actually mean in a lot of these areas? So certainly there are cyber and IT are particular areas, but there are others um, where you say first responders, certainly um, some of the fields like education where you may have different ways of being able to tag the skills that you're talking about and making sure that those skills are there as part of it. We are very much walking hand in hand with um, businesses around trying to understand what are the skills you're looking for on the first day of the job, clearly defined in a way that allows us to say either someone has those skills, skills coming in or we can rapidly get them up to speed. But those partnerships have literally been um, the reason that we have thousands and thousands of students who are in those. So certainly right now, for example, in Asia, I know we're getting ready to do classes in human resources, SHRM, um, PMP, um, with a number of the military. I think we're getting ready to do a series of cohort classes with the Marines, very much tied to these types of credentials that may not necessarily be the traditional classroom, but are ones that we can provide in ways that allow them to continue to moving forward. So that's always going to be a big part of what we want to do because we're going to be skills-based. Um, our vision is very much to be the school of business, uh, the school of choice for businesses and students because we are student centric, data driven and skills based. Those three things are the things we're trying to make sure people hear. So that means that we've got to be working closely with the businesses to make sure that what the, the currency they're looking for is the one that we have. The currency they're looking for is the one we have. Love that. That's a that's a great, great way to put it. All right, Dr. Fowler, as we are talking during February, it is also Black History Month and, um, you know, not necessarily the same as the veteran history or the veteran connection, but it's also another connection UMGC has recently received the designation as a minority serving institution. Open up a little bit about UMGC's designation there. So we at UMGC, we have approximately 90,000 students a year that we serve. And of those 90,000, some, I think it's close to 55,000 of them um, are in underrepresented population groups. So that includes um, Black students, Asian students, Indigenous populations, um, multiracial students. And one of the things that when I got here, I said, well, there are opportunities that will open up to us if we can gain, get the Department of Education to see that work and allow us to be designated as a minority serving institution, whether, there's, whether there are grants or whether there's research that allows us to continue to figure out how do we better support the various populations of the country. Um, of those 55,000 that I mentioned, some 25,000 are Black um, students and trying to make sure that um, we serve them as well. Um, one of the things we're doing as well is talking to a lot of our historically Black colleges and universities. Again, UMGC is one of the 12 schools in the um, university system of Maryland. And so we've got three HBCUs that are also part of it um, and trying to work with them on places and ways that we can learn how to better do the things that they do well when it comes to serving Black students. It also allows them, on the other hand, to learn how we, they can leverage some of the things we do from technology platforms and online work to broaden their grasp as well. So we are doing a lot of work to make sure that across the board, we are doing um, all we can to help the various populations um, be successful. So that designation, not necessarily to change the type of funnel, but moreover to make the funnel larger, to include even more people into the system. That's exactly right. We want to make sure that we are um, expanding. I always say we're not trying to blow up the box. We're trying to expand it. 
Um, and we're trying to make sure that we increase opportunities. We're not trying to remove opportunities. We are an open enrollment institution. So I always tell people this is not at the expense of any one group or the other. We want to help all of them. And our mission is to help all of them. And so anytime we can figure out how to do better at that, uh, one of the things I say to the team is no matter how good we may be at any one thing, we want to do better tomorrow than we are doing today. Yes, sir. Now, with that, um, where do you feel UMGC is today, say, from last year or even years and years ago in uh, providing access to quality education for the African-American community? You know, one of the things we have spent more time on, and I think we've talked a little bit here already about what I'm calling intentionality. Um, do we know what we're doing that's working and not working? Um, um, I have a big project that's going on right now where we're trying to do something that I call the, the Doppler radar of the student experience. So, so just as the when we look at Doppler radar, we can talk about forecasting whether or not there's going to be a storm and taking precautions or being supportive of the local populations, being able to say, hey, there's a reasonably good chance that a tornado is going to be coming through tonight. So, you know, be aware, um, take take shelter if you need to. In the same time of ways we are thinking about what's happening with the populations of students that we're working with. What are the things that we're doing when you have to step out or step in if there's a family emergency or if there's a crisis at work? All of the support mechanisms that uh, impact students are particularly important to us because, again, one of the things I've learned over the last 20 years is that generally when students aren't successful, it's not generally because they can't get the content. It's because life happens. Um, and if a school is getting is going to be good at helping when life happens, then they're going to be much more likely to help those students be successful. So for black students, certainly this is one of the things we want to make sure we're thinking about. The same thing is going to be true for students of the Hispanic population, students of the indigenous populations. Um, I believe that if we can get good at understanding where struggles are, we can help one more student tomorrow than we are today, then we're winning. Um, and that's the, that will continue to be our goal. You know, we talk and we hear words about mechanisms and there's programs and there's these kind of like sort of vague, ambiguous words uh, that we'll use to describe things that are available to the students. But what does it actually look like? Like if I am a student and I'm suddenly a dad and I just didn't plan on that as I entered the education funnel, but now I am like, what do those actually look like? So the, the first thing that I think we have to be clear about, and I go back to, I used that term intentionality a minute ago, I, I want to dive a little bit more deeply into that. Because college, as we talked about, I think, during our last interview, has often been a black box for students. They, they, they know it's something that they're supposed to get, but they aren't quite sure what they're supposed to get out of it. And we don't often make the connection. In, in higher education, we often just say, trust us. So the first thing that we have to do when talk about supporting is helping them to understand what it is that they're supposed to be getting. And being able to say, let us help us understand your goals, help us understand what motivates you, help us understand what a win looks like for you um, are critical pieces of this. So the first thing we do is start off with that conversation. Um, let's talk about what your needs are. Let's talk about what you understand. And that intentionality is the first step in helping a lot of these populations who have often said we don't believe that we are college material in the first place, or we've tried this four times. We get that question of, we've done this four times. What's going to be different about this time than the last four times that we've been doing it? So let's talk about the support mechanisms that are in place, mental health uh, issues that are going to be challenging. Let's talk about career services. Let's talk about the learning experiences that you've had in the past and which ones worked. Let's talk about just-in-time learning experiences that say, we're not going to try to overload you at the front, but when you get to those places where you need something, you may or, you may or may not remember this, but there used to be this book series called the Four Dummies series. 
um, the black and yellow books for just about everything um, that you could do. If you actually looked at the way that book was designed, they didn't try to, you know, dump everything on you at once. And whenever something came up, you had in the margins these things that said, now, remember, we talked about this back here. When we talk about support, we talk about what I call the Sherpa experience. That is, I can't climb the mountain for you, but I've climbed this mountain before and I've seen some of the obstacles and my job is to climb it with you in a way that gets you to the top and over it. So our job is when we built our student success coach model, it was, do you know enough about the student to see when they're beginning to struggle or to know enough about the things behind them and to preemptively put support mechanisms in place that allow them to keep moving in the same way that the Sherpa says, you know, I can see you're having a bit of altitude sickness or you're getting, you're able to move faster than somebody else. Let me make sure that I adjust to that. So that personalization um, and the availability and clear clarity around, I understand your purpose. I understand, you know, your struggles and I have the resources in place to get you over this mountain are things that are very, very personalized and intentional and have to be explicit. Let's talk about the fact that we see that you're going to struggle when you get to math. Let's talk about the resources we're going to have in place for you. And if these don't work, we've got these over here that may work for you instead. And But if you don't have that and if we aren't proactive about it, and this is critically important, a lot of these students are never going to reach out. A lot of them are even aware of the resources that um, are available for, to support them. But even if they are aware, a lot of them don't want to look like they're stupid. They don't want to have that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of I, I, someone told me I couldn't do this. So our job is to do as much as we can to build out the resource pathway, but explicitly in a way that says for everything that you run into, like that book, the For Dummies book says, oh, you reach this point. Here's the specific thing we're going to give you and let us link you back to that. So the more we're able to do that, the more likely we are to succeed. And I thought those books were tailor made for me <laughs> at many a time when I had well, I to use them to... myself. I definitely use them myself. Outstanding. Um, and these mechanisms, then this can also be, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like the online nature of a lot of this coursework. Um, there are ways in real time, if I'm having a change in my personal life or my professional life, and I'm still trying to knock out this degree, they can achieve this in-depth kind of step-by-step -step Sherpa approach online through what, just messaging with your professor and your professors are then trained to understand how to help people navigate what could be sort of turbulence in their life while they're trying to pursue this degree? Oh, not just through this sort of mechanisms like that. This is one of those places where we're spending a lot of time right now on machine learning and artificial intelligence, um, in part because a lot of the factors that are happening are things that can be um, leveraged or triggered without even necessarily having someone specifically having to reach out. We can see a lot of those things going on. If we can program machine learning to say these people are starting to struggle, um, and sometimes those students don't want to talk to a person oh, you've struggled, you've been trying to answer that question on the quiz four times and you've gotten it wrong. Um, I've got, now I want to actually point out, hey, you know, if you're having problems with this, there are resources that are available to help you um, with this. Or we noticed that you haven't actually been able to look in your learning resources for the last couple of weeks. Um, all of these are circumstances whereby we can use machine learning to help support the teams and the students and getting things done, some of which may require a person directly, but a lot of what's happening behind the scenes can happen um, if we built those tools right to um, raise the um, raise the flag for the student um, without um, hopefully making them feel like they aren't being successful. So sort of like, you know, when you're in your car and you've got the GPS going because you're trying to figure out where you're trying to go, you you missed the turn back here. I don't need a human being to, you know, you know tell me that. 
but I can have, you know, some type of tool that says, oh, recalibrating, trying to understand now what you're trying to do. Um, or if your um, motivation has changed, I got that. So let's talk about uh, you want to do this instead of that. You thought you wanted to go into accounting, but now you really want to go into human relations or human resources. Let's recalibrate and see where you are. So a lot of these can be self-help tools, but there's always going to be that human support there for you if you need it as well. I liken it to the teacher that could once observe you in the classroom and see you drifting off or see you nodding off and you haven't come to you know a class ready to participate. I mean, all these little subliminal things that, that an educator was once able to do in person yes. can now be intuitively woven into the experience and really kind of help a student that may, like you'd said, not even want to raise their own hand and say, I need help because that feels weird. Yeah, that is, that's the best use to AI I've heard of thus far. Forget all the crazy pictures AI can make, forget all the fake videos and stuff it can doctor. That's damn cool. Yeah, well, if you really think about it, imagine, and uh, now I'm picturing in front of me, 30 students in a traditional classroom. And I asked it to use the image you just had. I know the students that may be nodding, but I don't know if they're really getting it. But imagine an environment wherein the 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 system, the resources they're engaging with is are constantly uh, monitoring what are they learning? What are they getting? And they're answering these types of questions. And if they aren't getting the questions right, where am I guiding them? And while they're getting all of this stuff just automatically through the machine learning piece, the faculty member is being fed material that says, here are the three students in the class that are having the hardest amount of time. Here's what we are recommending. Um, or, hey, this student's at a critical point where um, they're about to give up or they've stopped participating altogether. We, you need to reach out to them. Right now, as a faculty member, I can't see or know those things, even if these students are all right in front of me. I just don't. Um, but these things, these tools will allow us to see our students really learning. Um, my One of my best friends is a, a pilot. And he talks about, you know, real learning for them when it comes to the flight simulators is they, they know when they go into the simulator that they're going to be tested on something. But they aren't always sure exactly what it is because it's not meant for them to answer the question. It's meant to see if they're really learning. And so for our students, if we're engaging in real learning with that type of thing, the, the, the machines can help us understand this person's really struggling with quadratic equations. They've tried this thing four times. We've made these recommendations um, and it may be time for you to reach out or we're going to recommend this thing over here. But it allows it takes some of the burden off the student and some of the anxiety from the student to know that the Sherpa is there in real time helping them all the time. Wow. Only wish I'd had that when I was an undergrad. Oh my gosh. I would have done so much more. No, well, you did have the four dummies books though, remember? <laughs> yes. Yes. When it came in a book form and that's what I was averse to. I was averse to opening a book. Who knew I'd become a journalist? Love it. Um, let me see. Where do we want to head, stick the landing here? Speaking of flight analogies. Um, uh, yes. This question comes up all the time with me on the show here. You know, I tend to have a lot of guests that have gone out and started businesses, love highlighting the veteran entrepreneur, love showing their pathways, love showing the resources that they use to get to where they were. But I do it really because what I don't want is a service member to get out, join the veteran family, and then just feel like, ah, I don't want to go work at the plant. I don't want to go work for the, you know, old man Smithers. There's more in my life and I don't want to just be one of the cogs in the wheel. And so I love when they've gone on 
and created businesses based on that idea that solved a problem. They saw uh, a lack of a certain kind of skincare product that their kids needed. And so they went out and they made it. And then the next thing you know, there's a huge skincare line. I covered a veteran that recently launched. I tend to put college sort of in opposition to that. And I don't mean to, it's not willfully intending to say, you know, pick a path, either start your business or go to college. You know, you gotta, it's a binary choice. What I'm curious about is how are some of the skills and education tools UMGC is providing helping that entrepreneur minded student? You know, it's interesting. And we think about people here, entrepreneurship, and they often think simply in terms of profit or revenue. But um, one of the other ways that I think about it is there are quite a lot of students, and I love seeing them at graduation, um, who are here talking about, I wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, and so I did start a business, but it may have been a nonprofit business um, that helps these various groups do these types of things. Um, or it may be that, I, hey, I wanted to start a business and actually generate some new products as well. So our job is, first of all, to understand what does the win look like to you um, and what are the skills that are going to be necessary for that? And how can we think of new ways to help you either get those skills or your credential for skills that you are already having? So one of the t conversations we are very much in the um, discussion with right now are where are the places in society and through employment where skills are being acquired that people aren't actually tagging? Um, and how do we make sure that they are aware of the skills that they're getting, um, even as they begin to speak? And how do we make sure of that? I've got this thing right here. Sorry, I know people can't see it, but you can see it. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Karate Kid. And so I, this person gave me this Christmas decoration. that, And it's basically Mr. Miyagi with that Mr. Miyagi smile. But it says, you have been learning all along. Um, and what we are trying to do is figure out ways to actually do stuff where we allow for people who are trying to start their own businesses to see the skills they already have and have an understanding of the skills they're going to need to be successful. So sometimes that's going to be as small as just a short term credential project management, um, understanding of debits and credits for accounting. Um, but we are trying to come up with short term credentials or short term experiences that allow for you to move rapidly into those types of things. Um, it, it, again, this may be a group that never even wants to get a degree, um, but they can still transform their lives through the skills they've already got with some additional um, plus one type of things as they're moving forward. So we're building more and more of those short term credentials. Um, and opening them up to the general population. I mentioned a little bit ago that the Marines have asked us to do this overseas uh, when it comes to um, the SHRM um, human resources uh, skill sets um, or for project management. These are the same types of things that we're hoping we, we can open up to service members across the country in more ways that will allow them to start their businesses, know what skills they're going to need, and for those not have to go back to school forever, but um, be able to find new ways to get those in rapid fashion and keep moving. Now, what we also want to do is make sure that they see that if those skills ultimately do stack into some larger credentials that they want, that we've created a path for that to be the case as well. So today it may be I need to get basic uh, inventory skills. Tomorrow it may be I need to get um, accounting skills. Ultimately, that may stack into something that opens up a whole new series of doors for them as well. So all of those things are tied together in the work that we're trying to do. Some bite-sized pieces of training there to help you on your way, even if owning your own business or taking your idea to market is the end goal for you, giving some smaller portions of training that can help really accelerate that. 
Just sounds great. And I will just add to the conversation on a personal note. I knew as a veteran, I knew as a communicator, I could run a business like I did with a little ice cream truck. It wasn't until this off season that I sat down and started looking at a business plan and started plugging in the COGS, cost of goods sold, started looking at earnings before interest and taxes, EBIT, started looking at operational income, carried yep. interest. And it went, once I realized I was looking at a balance sheet and I saw the negative impact of credit card debt, or I saw ways to max up here and I could tweak a little more profit if I lowered that cost or if I didn't spend money there and I spent it there. Lord, it took me right back to Miss Griffin's high school class of accounting that I tried to drop three times. She never would let me drop accounting. And I said, if I would pursued even just a bite-sized piece of accounting as an adult when I got out before starting this business or at some time during, I really, really would deeply understand how to make a profitable business. So um, I laud your efforts to do that because I know a lot of the folks out there just see the work of the business. For me, it was scooping ice cream, seeing kids. I knew I was good at that. I knew I didn't need a college degree for that, but I didn't know that I was going to need this down the road to actually be a good president of my own company. So uh, phenomenal. And Phil, I will say that the beauty of it is, and this was when I got my MBA, um, it was from Western Governors University. And the beauty of this is that a lot of the skill sets that we attach to degrees are ones that you're already acquiring um, or, or they're being framed in a way that makes sense to you. And I think part of the big challenge is making sure that we don't speak in academies um, to such an extent that people can't get it. It's like, no, this is very basic stuff that we're talking about. First in, first out inventory, first in, last out inventory. These are, uh, it's like if you start talking in terminology, it's like, oh, so that's what that means. Um, it's like, I've been doing that all along, but I didn't know that's that, that that was what that was called. So tagging those skills and making sure that people get it um, is a huge deal in this type of work. And it also, again, reinforces that idea that you have the power all along. Um, you just may not necessarily have been, it hasn't been framed in a way that, you know, identifies or clicks with you. But if we can do that, then you find far more people who are transforming their lives through those skill sets um, as they continue to move forward, too. Love the word skill sets. We've said it a dozen times in this interview, but it's so cool to kind of hear that reflected from a college uh, that it's not degrees and what do you say, academies? Uh, yes. 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 Well, I tell people it's like, think about it this way. You can have a hundred dollars, right? That hundred dollars could be a hundred dollar bill, but there are, but if we build this right, it could be a hundred one dollar bills. It could be 10, $10 bills. Um, if somebody comes along and says, I don't really need a hundred dollars, but do you got 25? All of a sudden, I've, if I've got the currency in various ways, I can still ultimately get you to a hundred dollars if that's where you want to go. But everybody doesn't need that. Um, and if I build these other things in such a way that you can plug and play or partner in different ways, then I find all kinds of different um, motivations, all kinds of different dreams, all kinds of goals can be met. Mm, great analogy there. As we wrap this uh, fascinating conversation about the veteran experience and the service members that are taken care of through UMGC and about everyone's own sort of kind of acknowledgement of their path. What do I want to be when I grow up is essentially the question we're answering here. And how do I get to be that uh, is what UMGC really offers a doorway to. It is also, as we'd mentioned, Black History Month. And we've talked about your connection there to the African-American community. Uh, I want to leave you with this question. What do you think Dr. Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, 
some of the great African-American role models that we've had. What do you think they would think about the state of higher education today? You know, that's a good question. And, you know, I um, did teach uh, Martin Luther King Jr. for a number of years. Um, And I think it would be a mixed message. I think we've certainly made progress. I think that he would say that education has empowered a number of different parts of the population to be successful. But I also think that he would um, have some concerns about our value chain when it comes to how we look at schools in the country. And I've talked about this before. The idea that the value that we place on higher education continues to be one of selectivity and exclusivity. Um, that in many cases, the schools that are ranked the highest are the ones that take greatest pride in how few people they open the doors to um, is something that I think we've got to be willing to take a closer look at. Um, the unwillingness sometimes of us to really recognize all the various places and ways that learning happens um, because it's not the way that we want to create an, a one size fits all. Again, it limits the way that learners can actually move forward. So I think that it would be continue to find new ways to um, recognize the value and the things that people bring to the table uh, and make sure that your value system. You know, one of his speeches, um, people often talk about the I have a dream speech. The one I often talk about is his drum major instinct speech, which he gave. Um, it, uh, they um, used part of it at his funeral. And the drum major instinct is always to try to say we're number one. And he talks about this idea of trying to make yourself number one by putting other people down or not seeing the value in other people. And he turns that on his head and says that greatness is about service, the ability of of people to help other people. And so when it comes to higher education, what I think he would say is that the more people you are able to help, the more great you will be. And I think that's something we've really got to take to heart. Um, How do we figure out, not necessarily, you know, telling everybody they've got to be just like us, uh, not just saying that only the people who can afford the highest education or the people who have these particular traits are the ones we want to help. But how do we help as many people be successful um, as possible? And if we do that, then we can truly have greatness. Absolutely love that. Never really thought about it that way, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, it is not a sport. We're not looking at the NFL. We're only 1% of 1% of 1% actually make it to that level of achievement. Nah, education shouldn't be limited to that type of competition. It shouldn't be limiting like that. It should be as many people that can learn something as humanly possible. What a brilliant kind of look at how to address the need for education in America and what education can deliver, whether it's four years, whether it's master's, whether it's MBA, PhD, or whether it's a skills-based learning unit that you just need to help enhance whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, Absolutely love it. I will say this, um, that Dr. King said, and I have heard this line over and over again, that some people will graduate summa cum laude. Some people will graduate cum laude. Some people will graduate magna cum laude. He's like, and then some people are just going to graduate. Thank you, Lottie. Um, and if we can actually just say for those people, you've got a pathway forward too, then that's a good thing. And we've done our work. Dr. Fowler, I'm writing that one down, as well as your Mr. Miyagi picture behind you uh, that says you've been learning the entire time. Love your approach. Love your thought and your perspective on delivering education to all communities in America, UMGC. Uh, Thank you very sincerely for being my partner over these last several years. I really do love the fact that I get to represent and work with you guys each and every week. 
Thank you, Phil, for the opportunity and best to you and certainly to our service members and their families around the globe. Now, if you're looking to prepare your future with some college-level learning online, check out University of Maryland Global Campus, and you'll find in-demand fields like cybersecurity, business, IT, and healthcare. UMGC offers more than 125 degrees, including bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees, as well as undergraduate and graduate certificates. Find out more at umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.